Hi, and welcome to the Church Unlimited podcast. Church Unlimited is a vibrant, Bible-based church in North Lakes, Queensland, that is passionate about helping people discover the genuine love of Jesus. If you're currently looking for a home church, we would love for you to join us for Sunday worship. For more information about our Sunday service, or to find out how we can best help you, head to our website at churchunlimited.com.au. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You can be seated. Uh, so good to be here with you. Good Friday, my Church Unlimited family. If you're the type likes to follow an actual Bible, we're going to start in the book of Ephesians and then go back to Matthew and then journey around. But we created some really easy to follow along with slides um, if, you're, if you don't want to follow along in the actual Bible. The only thing I want to say uh, before I get going is I'd like to invite you all back to Easter Sunday, Resurrection um, Sunday. We have something very special set aside. I promise you it'll change your life. Um, just come on back and let's uh, encounter the Easter story in, in a fresh new way. On your way out today, uh, right there by the door, we have a small table set up uh, with our teaching resources and USBs for both audio and video. The reason we do that is because we make money from it. And the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so what we use the money from that to fund our missions in the world. For us, we choose to support children's homes in China that look after mentally handicapped children, mentally disabled children, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of the sex industry, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we could do our part to break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats. There's all kinds of other things we do. I'm not going to announce them all. On your way out, if you would come by and let me put something in your hands that'll change the way you look at God. And in so doing, you put something in our hands that helps us feed, clothe, shelter, educate mentally handicapped kids in China. I think it's a pretty good deal. Um, since the last time I was here, I've done several new ones. Um, the church leaders asked me to handle the whole sexuality topic. And so my master's degree is actually in that. And so we've, we've got an 11-part series out there um, on that topic. We also did a six-hour short course on how to approach the Bible in a more meaningful way. If the book that's supposed to reveal Christ actually gets in the way of Christ, then there's a problem. And the problem's not with the Bible. The problem's in our approach to it. And so Pastor Wayne Alcorn had me come do a six-hour short course on how to approach it better. That's out there as well. All kinds of other stuff. I just finished a series on the life of David and what it teaches about faith formation. Come out, say hello. Let me put something in your hands that'll change the way you look at God. And in so doing, you help us bring heaven to every place we see hell here. All right? So obviously this morning, we're going to talk about the cross. And for Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, James, the first believers, the cross was not something to believe in. Like, I believe in Jesus. Well, demons believe in Jesus. What is that? Jesus was not something to believe in. Jesus was someone to fundamentally shape the way we see all things. For them, the cross was not just simply something that happened. It was a revelation of a more profound way to live. And I want to talk to you about one of those aspects today by looking at something Paul said to a group of people in Ephesus. If you could bring that first slide up for me. This is Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so by making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In this passage, Paul's saying that the cross should inspire us. That, that looking at what Jesus did on the cross, is, is, it should be something that inspires us to live at peace with each other. Black, white should be at peace. 
how could you be a Christian and hold their race against them? That doesn't make any sense. Male, female should be at peace. Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, black or white, Republican, Democrat, labor, liberal, whatever, vax, not vax, whatever your opinion is, there should be something about what Jesus did on the cross that inspires us to live at peace with our fellow man. Now, this sounds something incredibly familiar to something Jesus said in his first sermon, third line in. Check this out. Next slide. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Whoa. Stop. The first criteria Jesus ever gave for what it means to be a child of God is our basic disposition in conflict. That's quite challenging, is it not? <laughs> like if I was to hand a piece of paper out and go, I want you to write down the criteria for being called a child of God. Where would our basic disposition in conflict be? It wouldn't have made my list, I gotta be honest with you, until I saw this. And the, the challenge is, is that the first thing Jesus ever said about what it means to be a child of God doesn't make our list. And so to us, it's like, wait a minute, child of God is what you believe. For Jesus, a child of God was how you behaved specifically in conflict. Unless you're thinking, well, what if that's mistranslated or what if it's only a one-off? Good point. Um, so 34 verses later in the same sermon, that's called two minutes later. He says the same thing. Watch what he says. Next slide. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Twice in the same sermon, Jesus ties our basic disposition in conflict for whether the world will look at us and go, those are children of God. Now, however you want to take that, it doesn't matter to me. Can we all just agree together that to Jesus's way of living, our basic disposition in conflict was very, very important? And then I want us to ask a simple question. How are we doing with that? Don't just love your friends. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's Matthew 5, verse 43. That's going to be very important. Let, let, me tell you, let me tell you a story that illustrates this. Uh, years ago, I got invited to Jerusalem to study for three days with a top ancient history expert in Jerusalem. He has two earned PhDs. He teaches archaeology and ancient history at the University of Jerusalem. And he had heard me preach a sermon, and he invited me to preach at a synagogue um, in Jerusalem. And as a part of my payment, he taught me history for three days. It's a pretty good deal. Um, so I went there and he's teaching me, he's taking me around and he was regularly blowing my mind. I mean, regularly. And within 10 minutes, he did something that blew my mind. And, but my response shocked him. My response made him think I wanted to argue. Here was my response to something he said that amazed me. I went, really? Really? Okay. So English isn't his first language, it's his second language, and he didn't get the metaphor. He didn't get the, uh, I was amazed, he thought I wanted to fight. Let's be clear, I did not want to fight. Let's also be clear, we are in Jerusalem talking about Jewish history with a Jewish history expert. If we get in an argument, if I disagree with him, it's me. 
right? I'm the problem. That's not what's important. What's important is that he thought I wanted to fight. And a guy that had all the bullets in the gun, I had no bullets. The guy that had all the bullets in the gun, he could have destroyed me in an argument. But this was his response. I said, really? Really? His response was, oh, Shane, peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, please let it be me. Well, I was shocked by that, which made it worse. My response to that was, what? He said, oh, Shane, peace between us is the most important thing. If one of us needs to be wrong, please let it be me. So that the world can see Christ being glorified in our conversation, would you let me be wrong so that they can see Jesus? That's a child of God. That's a person that decided beforehand to intentionally live with a peacemaking disposition in conflict instead of a hostility escalating conflict. I said to him, Ari, did you think I wanted to argue with you? He said, didn't you? I said, okay, first of all, would you please forgive me for my tone? I definitely didn't want to argue with you. I was, and as smart as I can be with words sometimes, at that moment, I could think of nothing but metaphors. I said, I was blown away. Well, we're standing in Jerusalem. He's like, blown away. Who is blowing what, right? right? Who is blowing what up, right? I said, no, 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 um, oh, oh, um. I said, Ari, I was amazed. And he, that's when it dropped for him. He went, he went, were you amazed? I said, Ari, I was amazed. Here was his response. He held his heart and said, oh, good. Because I knew I was right about that. <laughs> he said, but seriously, seriously, I don't need to be right about anything more than I would want the whole world to see Jesus in our conversation. That's peacemaking. See, the cross offers us two choices. We can live in something called the hostility cycle, or we can live in the peacemaking cycle. Good Friday is a celebration of what Jesus did, but it's a challenge. Are we choosing hostility or are we choosing peacemaking? Now, let's talk about the hostility cycle for a second. The hostility cycle is illustrated everywhere, okay? Um, but let's, let's just, I'm gonna pick a story from the Bible um, that illustrates it well. It's the story of Samson. If you're not familiar with the story of Samson, Samson's a lunatic who does nothing right, okay? He disobeys his parents. He kills a lion. He has a Philistine girlfriend. He has no people skills at all. He ends up in a room of 30 Philistines and he's like, I bet you 30 Philistines are so stupid. 30 of your pea brains put together can't do what one Jew can do, right? How to win friends and influence people. And he makes a bet with them. He says, I'm going to tell you a riddle. And if you can guess the answer in seven days, I'll give you 30 pieces of clothes. But if not, you have to give me 30 pieces of clothes. They make the deal. He tells them a riddle that no one could know because no one was there except him. He pulled food out of a dead carcass of a lion, right? And he says, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. I bet you can't guess. I bet you can't. Of course they can't guess. No one else saw what he's referencing. <laughs> so seven days goes by and they corner his girlfriend and they say, listen, 
you need to do whatever it is women do to get men to talk when they don't want to talk. Details omitted. So she does whatever she does, and he tells her the answer, and then she tells them, and then, of course, they guess the answer, and if you're paying attention, he now owes them 30 pieces of clothes. Well, instead of going to the store and buying 30 pieces of clothes and going, you got me, he goes to the neighboring village, kills 30 of their family members, strips them naked, and says, there's the clothes I owe you. This guy lost a bet and killed 30 people. He's a lunatic. Listen, if you lose a bet today and your response is to kill 30 people, you're going to prison forever. And you should. Back then, they wrote a book about you. <laughs> the world's getting better, right? In almost every way, the world's getting better. So Samson kills, kills 30 of their family members. They respond by burning his girlfriend's entire family with fire. He responds by tying foxes together and burning their fields down. They respond by sending a thousand people to kill him, which is massive overkill. He responds by picking up the jawbone of a donkey and killing all thousand of them. They respond by tricking him with another woman, blinding him, arresting him, and putting him on doing the work of a donkey on a millstone. He responds by tricking them into tying him to the pillars of a temple where they're having a big pagan festival. And then he pulls the entire building down and everybody dies. Now listen, if you're paying attention, what started out as a joke that no one understood escalated into everybody dying. That's called escalation. If you're here today and you're married, you understand this. <clears throat> How many of you married couples have had escalation in your marriage? An argument starts out about how to cut a tomato, and before you know it, it escalates into insulting each other's mothers, right? It, it goes like this. It goes like this. That's not how you cut a tomato. That's how I cut a tomato. That's not how my mom did it. Well, I ain't your mama. Well, I wish you cut a tomato like her. Well, I ain't as fat as her, and now it's on. That's how it works. There's lots of children in here. Every one of you have seen it with your kids. Why did you punch her in the face? Because she deserved it, right? She started it. How many of you parents have heard that enough to never hear it again in your whole life? And it'll be okay. That's one thing when you're five. When you're 35, it's incredibly off-putting. Now, the hostility cycle operates on one piece of gasoline. Let me show it to you in the story. This is Judges 15. Check this out. Next slide. And her father said, well, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Side note, you didn't want to be a woman back then. The world's better for women. The world's better for almost everybody. Look, you'd rather be a woman today than 1950 or 1850. You'd rather be black today than 1950 or 1850. Is God done redeeming race relations? No. Is it better? Yes. Number one selling cough medicine in 1900 was liquid heroin. It was legal and effective, right? Oh, look, Billy's not coughing anymore. Matter of fact, Billy's not doing much anything anymore. Five weeks ago, I had a colonoscopy. I'm so glad it was 2023 and not 1953, where it was like, hey, just breathe through it, buddy. Breathe through it. It'll be done in a second. Just breathe right on through it. It's just better. Back then, they're bartering their preteen girls to barbarian maniacs. Next slide. 
And Samson said to them, this time, here's the fuel, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Keep going. Then the Philistines said, who's done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he's taken his wife and given her his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Massive overreaction. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I'll be avenged on you. Then after that, I'll quit. <laughs> because you did something, I'll be innocent when I purposely hurt you. That's how hostility works. Hostility says, I have a right to harm you because you've done something to me. And here's the problem. If I don't quit till I'm one up and you don't quit till you're one up, everybody dies. Now, if you're a linear learner, you sort of got lost in a bit of that, right? So I did this for you. Next slide. Here's how the hostility cycle works. First, there's an offense. Somebody does something. Next one. Then you dehumanize the adversary. Like, this time I have a right. Right? Next slide. Then there's an unwillingness to take responsibility for our part. At no point in the story of Samson does anybody own their stuff. Never does Samson go, my bad, my bad. I should have obeyed my parents to begin with. I shouldn't have killed 30 of your family members. I shouldn't have burned your fields down. Sorry. Never. At no point do the Philistines ever go, our bad, shouldn't have burned people to death. Probably shouldn't have done that. You know what? Sending a thousand people to kill you, we should have thought that would have antagonized you. Our, you know what? Putting your eyes out with a hot rod, our fault, right? Nobody ever owns their stuff, which leads to, next slide, escalation. Escalation and hostility is driven by blame. You did something to me and that gives me a right to do something right back to you, right? Next slide. And then there's holding the other person responsible for the escalation. Since you've acted like this, now I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And not only am I gonna do what I wanna do, I wanna be, I'm gonna be innocent when I hurt you on purpose because you deserve it. Next slide. And then there's a failure to learn, which leads to repeating the pattern. That's how hostility works. In marriage, in neighboring, in race relations, in politics, in health debates, in churches, in business, with Sally in accounting, that is how hostility works. But the cross offers us a better way to live. It offers us option B, which I would say is more profound. A good friend of mine is not a Christian, and he asked me a great question. He said, Shane, if the whole world converted to Christianity, how would it be better? I think that's a great question to ask. And I think this is just one example of one of the ways if people not believed it, belief, whatever, I'm talking about the belief gets so down in us that this is how we live. The cross offers us a more profound option. Next slide. Let's say it this way. The cross wasn't solely about forgiveness and freedom, but it was also an end to hostility. Was the cross about forgiveness? Sure. Was it about being set free? Sure, we sing all those songs. But it was also about a challenge to live as children of God in this world by making peace. To look at what Jesus did and go, he can act like that when treated like that. I should stop rationalizing harming people. Next slide. The cross was a physical manifestation of a new way to live. The most loving person acts first to end the hostility. Let's maybe say it this way. Next slide. Peacemaking then is not passive. It's charging in with a different way 
and changing lives. Now, Jesus said it this way. Don't just love your friends, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's Matthew 5, verse 43. Jesus is concluding a three-point sermon on how to live in peace. Matthew 5, 43, don't just love your friends, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. If you go back three verses, he gives us a three-point sermon on how he sees peacemaking. Here's what he says. First of all, next slide. He says to turn the other cheek. Watch what his exact words are. Next slide. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. Pause. How are we doing with that? I've heard Christians go, I just don't get why the whole world doesn't become Christian. Really? You don't get that? Are Christians actually living like this? I don't know. I don't think we're very good at it. And does it actually work? And what is Jesus talking about? Turn the other cheek. Well, to understand this, we have to understand Roman social systems. Next slide. So in the Roman Empire, there was a... No, no, that's... It's out of order. Um, in the Roman Empire, you had a nine-layered class system. You had a nine-layered class... Just right here. Just right here. You had a nine-layered class system. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And there was a difference between right-handed slaps and left-handed slaps. If we were both class two and I had a problem with you, I would hit you with my right hand. But if I was class two and you were class eight, I would never, ever, ever hit you with my right hand. I would hit you with my left hand. The reason is, is it's the hand I wipe my bum with. It was like, you're not worth my good hand. I'm going to hit you with my poo-poo hand, right? It was that. It was, the, it was the first century equivalent of a racial slur. It would be like saying the N-word, but with a physical violence, like you're less human than me. I, 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 you're not worth this hand, you're worth this hand. Watch what Jesus says. He says, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, hang on, to slap someone on their right cheek, you have to use your left cheek. Hand. In other words, if someone degrades you, if someone calls you by something outside your name, if somebody says you're less human than me, don't escalate the violence. Turn the other cheek. In other words, only present the side of you that makes them address you as an equal and they won't do it. It'll de-escalate the entire situation. It's turn the other cheek. His next, his next strategy was called the tunic and the cloak. He says, I want you to give your tunic and your cloak. Here's his exact words. Next slide. <laughs> he says, if someone was to demand your outer garment, just give, would sue you and, give, and demand your outer garment, just give them your inner garment as well. Well, in Jewish culture, there's only two types of garments. There's an outer garment and an inner garment. Jesus is telling people to get naked. <laughs> That's strange. So he says, if you want to live in peace, turn the other cheek. Second thing, I want you to give your tunic and your cloak. To understand the first one, you got to understand Roman class systems. To understand the second one, you got to understand Deuteronomy law. In Deuteronomy, someone could sue you, and if you couldn't pay them, you would have to give them your outer cloak as a promise. 
Here's what was happening. In first century Galilee, people were losing their land that had been in their family since the book of Joshua, okay? Here's why. The Romans were occupying the land and 3% of Jews were Roman sympathizers and the people in Galilee were living on 80% taxation. 50% of their fish, 30% of their grain, 12.5% to Caesar as the son of God, the Roman roads tax, the temple tax, and the dodginess of the tax collectors. These people were losing their land and the Roman sympathizers were enriching themselves and still suing their Jewish brothers and sisters in order to take the shirt off their back. Jesus said, if someone is willing to take the shirt off your back, just give them everything. Why? Why? Because in Jewish culture, being naked is not shameful. Seeing nakedness is. So the man is putting all of his shame on the other while remaining peaceful. The idea is, is what kind of person would take both cloaks? To Jesus, you confront oppression, not with fighting, but with uber generosity. The way you confront greed is not fighting. The way you confront greed is exhibiting uber generosity to our world. How do you live at peace? You turn the other cheek. You give your tunic and your cloak. The last one he gave is called go the extra mile. Here's his exact words. If anyone forces you to go one mile, just go two. If anyone would force you to go one mile, that's a weird word, to force someone to go a mile, right? Like what was their first century private trainers? Come on, Willard, one more mile. What's going on here? Well, to understand the first one, you got to understand Roman class systems. To understand the second one, you got to understand Deuteronomy law. To understand the third one, you got to understand Roman military law. The Galileans were ruled by the Roman military. The Roman military had rules, things they couldn't do and things they could do. And they could do almost anything. They could crucify people just for entertainment. They could rape every woman in a village. They just, they could take whatever they wanted. They could do almost anything except for if they were gonna go on a hike, like they had a three mile walk and they had these 70 pound packs, they didn't have to carry their own pack, nor would they. Why would they carry a 70 pound pack when they're surrounded by class eight low lives that they can make carry their pack, right? So you're gonna carry my pack for a mile. You're gonna carry my pack for a mile. You're gonna carry my pack for a mile. You're like a forced golf caddy, right? And so the rule was you could make anybody carry your pack one mile but you could not ever make them go more than a mile because it prevented them from going back to work where they had to pay more taxes, which financed the occupation. And as a Roman soldier, if you got caught making someone go more than a mile, you were court-martialed a day's wage to pay the tax that was funding the occupation. So Jesus says, if someone makes you go one mile at the one mile mark, just take off and go two and you'll have a Roman soldier chasing you down, trying to get you to stop. This is genius stuff from a first century rabbi. How does Jesus say we live in peace? Well, you turn the other cheek. You go the extra mile. You give your tunic and your cloak. You don't just love your friends, you love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Here's the question that should be asked by all of us. Did Jesus have the moral authority to say that? And what I mean by moral authority is, did Jesus practice what he preached? 
Did Jesus smoke what he was selling? Was Jesus buying his own product? Jesus said, live in peace with a peacemaking disposition. And that's what Good Friday, to me, is all about. Good Friday is a manifestation of a way of living that would change the world. And there's two stories in Jesus's life around the crucifixion that I think illustrate this well. The first one we'll just simply call heal the ear. Jesus is in this, uh, they, they did a four hour meal with four glasses of wine and Jesus chooses to make this the time for a prayer meeting. People are having a hard time staying awake. You can understand that. They just drank four glasses of wine and had a huge meal. He's like, can you stand out, stay awake for an hour? And there was, a, there was a high priest servant named Malchus. He's the high priest in training. And he's leading the charge into the garden to arrest Jesus. You got Judas Kiss, you got all this stuff going on. But Malchus comes up and it says, one of Jesus' disciples took a knife and cut Malchus's ear off his head, which is strange because he does it in front of the police and no one arrests him. Like, which leads to all kinds of questions like, was it legal in the first century to cut folks' ears off? What's happening? They're arresting a person who's acting peacefully and they're letting the person go who just chopped a man's ear off his head. What's going on there? And if you ask anybody in the world that's a Christian, which disciple cut the guy's ear off, everybody says, Peter. How do we know that? Well, Mark says a certain companion of Jesus. Matthew says one of Jesus' friends. Luke says one of Jesus' disciples. How do we know it's Peter? Does he get a bad rap because he's kind of nuts? Like, what's going on? Matthew says one of Jesus' friends. Mark says one of Jesus' companions. Luke says one of Jesus' disciples. What's going on there? Well, the way we know it's Peter is because John said, Peter did it. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like, hey, let's keep all this on the down low, shall we? John's like, nope, throw him under the bus. <laughs> Peter did it. No question. Here was the thing, right? Here's the reason he wasn't arrested. It's because of who Malchus was. Malchus was a priest in training. And I'll try to do this quickly, like in 20 seconds. There, there, was, a, there was a rift between rabbis and priests. Here's why. To be a priest, you had to be born. The end. To be a rabbi, you had to go through 30 years of school and, be earned, and you had to earn it. So there was a rift between people who had to earn their stature and people who were just born with their stature. Can you see how that can be? The problem is, is how, how do you disqualify a priest if the only qualification is that they're born? Can you see how there might be a case where a good priest gives birth to an evil priest? It just could happen that way. So you got to disqualify that guy because you don't want him representing you to God. So in the first century, what they did is they used an obscure passage from Leviticus to justify this. So if you could bring up that Leviticus 21 passage, my friend. Oh, here we go. No one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man born blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face. I don't know how you lived back then. Was that actually a problem? Excuse me, sir, you're up next to be the priest, but your face is just a bit too mutilated for us. Like, it's weird. Or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, 
or scabs. crushed testicles, <laughs> which leads to this question, was there any more awkward job on earth than the priestly inspector? <laughs> yeah? Face, not mutilated, limbs about the right length, not a hunchback, not a dwarf, no scabs I can really see. Sir, there's just this one more test. It's going to be awkward for me and you, but we got to check. <laughs> <laughs> No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offering. He says he has a blemish, he can't come near. So here's what they did in the first century. If they deemed you disqualified, they gave you a blemish. <laughs> what they would do is they would hold you down. You could read about it in Josephus if you're a nerd. They would hold you down, they would pierce your ear and pull. It would hurt. You would get over it. But it would leave you with a public flaw. And that meant you could never be the priest again. See, my Sunday school teacher told me that Peter was trying to chop his head off and missed. <laughs> Highly unlikely. Think about it. If you're trying to chop someone's head off and you hit them in their ear hole, that's called a direct hit. What more than likely happened is Peter came behind them and just flicked his ear off. None of that's important, except for comedy and entertainment. Here's what is important, is Jesus' response. Jesus is being arrested to die because of this guy. And on his way to being tortured and killed, he takes a second, thinks about that guy first, picks up his ear, and puts his ear back on his head. What did that do? What well, healed his ear. But more than that, it restored him back to the ministry of the temple. See, Peter's point of view is, hey, you're fixing to kill the real temple. You don't have any right to serve in the temple built with the hands of men. And he put his ear back on his head, which leads me to this question. Where have we rationalized ear cutting instead of ear healing? Where have we looked for any way to disqualify someone from ministry instead of putting their ear back on their head. Where have we in the last seven days Googled someone's name, hoping to find a little bit more dirt on them so we can justify taking their ear off? No wonder the world doesn't accept the Christian message. We're not living it. At Church Unlimited, we should always be ear healers and never, ever, ever ear cutters. Now, great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. There's one other story from the cross that I want to tell you, and it makes no sense. The cross was being tortured all day. Mocked, spit, scourged. You're 18 inches off the ground and you're helpless and they're throwing things at you. And it's a mess. But there's one part of the cross that makes no sense. In all of that torture, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And someone goes, we'll get him something to drink. That makes no sense. What you would expect to see is, oh, he's thirsty. Oh, poor thing. He's the God. Hey, drink yourself. You know, that's what you would expect. Nope. They lift a sponge on a stick up to his mouth. And that's the one point where somebody went, no, no, that's enough. Good grief. Good grief. 
What's going on there? Well, to understand this, you got to understand first century Roman hygiene. All you have to do is Google first century Roman toilet paper, and you're going to find that first century Roman toilet paper was sponges on sticks. What would happen is, in the Roman public toilets, the beggars would make money by offering a bum cleaning service. But they wanted to be distant from it. So what they did is they went and collected sponges and they put them on bamboo sticks. And if you wanted to use their service, you would just call them over and they would come up behind you and they would, you know, really get in there, right? The problem was, is how did you sanitize the sponge? So what they did is they went around and they collected all the spoiled wine, which had alcohol in it, and vinegar, and they made buckets of sour wine and vinegar in the public toilet latrines. And then what they would do is, between uses, they would swirl the sponge in the sour wine and vinegar, and it would sanitize the sponge to first century standards. So Jesus is on the cross. And someone says, I know what to give him to drink and they lifted a sponge on a stick soaked with sour wine and vinegar. That was the public toilet butt wiper. And Jesus, in that moment, was still so others-focused and so driven by peacemaking and compassion, what was his response? Father, forgive even him. Which is why any message of Jesus, it's like, if you don't do something, Jesus is gonna... No, that's not the message of Jesus. Even if there's a 25-foot cross on top of the building, you can have a 25-foot cross on top of the building, a four-foot cross around your neck, and still miss the point. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give your tunic and your cloak. Don't just love your friends, love your enemies. And then he proved it by healing the man's ear and still forgiving the man that lifted the sponge. Now, great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle with a few questions. Next slide. Have we received the cross that forgives us while rejecting the cross that ends hostility? To me, that's what Good Friday's about. Good Friday is about receiving a cross that forgives us, but then being so inspired by that that we treat others in a way that ends the hostility cycle instead of escalating it. Is there any place where we're escalating violence right now? Like, don't answer out loud, it's rhetorical. In your marriage, are you in a hostility cycle or a peace cycle? With your neighbor, with Sally in accounting, with the Democrats, the Republicans, the labor, the liberal... Are we escalating violence or peacemaking? Where do we need to act first to be a peacemaker? Next slide. Is there anybody's ear that we need to repair? Is there anyone you've disqualified? You just put them out. Jesus called us to a better way to live. And you say, Shane, you don't understand what they did to me. Right, right. Did they lead the charge to kill you in a violent way? Probably not. Whatever your problem with Sally and accounting is, it pales in comparison with the crucifixion. And Jesus still took the second to put his ear back on. 
Jesus has given his life for us. What's our offering going to be back to him? In the Good Friday story, Jesus is offering his life for this man. And this man's offering back to him was a dirty Roman sponge. Is the offering of our life a sweet-smelling incense? Or does the offering of our life smell like a dirty Roman sponge in God's nostrils? They say great teachers can summarize big things in one sentence. Here's my attempt at that. Next slide. What if the cross was God saying, how far do I have to go for you all to get along? What if Good Friday is a moment where we're supposed to stop and reflect on a cross that forgives me, but then challenge ourselves to live how Jesus taught us to live in peacemaking? How, Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciple by your love. May we be that. Now, I went two minutes over my allotted time. I hope you'll forgive me. But if not, peace between us. Which leads me to communion. In a few minutes, we're going to take this. If you just get this ready, and Jess is going to sing us a song to reflect on what we just talked about. Alive and we live in him. He is alive. 
Jesus is alive and we live in Him. The grave could not contain the glory of our King. Jesus is alive and we live in Him. So, on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he was having a Passover, which we celebrated last night. And the third cup of the Passover meal is the cup of redemption. And it's at this point in the dinner where he brings out what was called the afikamen. It was the bread of affliction that had been broken in half and buried. And, and then he lifted it up. And instead of saying, this is the body of the one that will be broken for us, he said, this is my body broken for you. And I want you to remember this. And so today we take communion to remember Good Friday, a day where forgiveness was purchased for free. And then the only ask of the purchaser is, be so inspired by that, that you treat others with grace and love and kindness. The, the, to, to partake of the bread is, is a place in our tradition where, where we remember that. But it's also a place of profundity where we remember that in this room right now, there's black, there's white, there's male, there's female, there's rich, there's not so rich, there's that. But in this one moment, it's one body, one Christ holding us all together in this room. There's liberal parties, there's labor parties, there's men, there's women, there's black, white, rich, poor. There's people from other, um, other, other cultures and you're all welcome here. And this is the part that reminds us of that. One Christ holding us all together, which should inspire us to never treat someone with animosity, but to remember the kindness of Good Friday. Let's take the wafer and eat together. In the same manner, he picked up the cup, the cup of redemption. And he said, this is the blood, my blood, the blood that buys you out, that pays the price, to pay sin off, to pay death off. And it's in this moment that I'd like to take us a second and think about that. Maybe you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. And you go, I, I don't even know what that means. I hear words like saved or um, restored or is Jesus your savior? What, what does that even mean? Let me, let me put some language around that for you, okay? It means that there comes a moment in your life where you trust Jesus's version of your life story instead of the one you've been writing on your own. And you come to a place where you go, you know what? I'm gonna surrender to that version of my life story instead of the one I've been working on my own because I fundamentally believe Jesus's version of my life is better. And not only that, I believe that if the whole world followed the way Jesus saw the world, the world would be better. And if that's you today, I'd like to invite you to say yes to Jesus. And I can't think of a better response to say yes to Jesus than to take communion, than to remember what he did and say yes, to surrender to Jesus being the Lord of your life. If you'd like to do that, I'd like to invite you to do that as we all drink together.
Thank you so much for letting me be part of your Good Friday, a part of your journey. Thanks for being my Church Unlimited family. Thanks, James and Paula and the team for having me be here. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller for you today. May you not want mercy for yourself and then justice for everybody else. May we not say, God, forgive me, but God, get them. May we not just love our friends, but love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us so that we, we may be sons of our Father in heaven. May we be peacemakers. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Give your tunic and your cloak. And my goodness, may we be ear healers instead of ear cutters. Until I see you Easter Sunday, grace and peace, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We pray that you and your family are richly blessed by the love and grace of Jesus. If you're ever in the area, we would love for you to join us for Sunday worship. 